Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And the more than doubling of the size of the federal crossbench was the biggest story out of the May election and especially the election of community independence or TEALS. Many, but certainly not all of the crossbench received donations from a group called Climate 200. Uh, Climate 200 was established to provide campaign support for winnable community candidates who were selected by existing local campaigns. And this is so long as they met the eligibility um, criteria for funding, which was supporting values such as climate, integrity and women's safety. Uh, There are many people behind the success of Climate 200, but Climate Simon Holmes Accord is in many ways the face of it. He's now written an essay called The Big Teal, published as part of Monash University's In the National Interest series. And in the... In the story, he tells how Climate 200 came to be born um, out of his passion for climate, energy, technology and community. And, uh, Simon, it's nice to have you back on Triple R. It's been a little while. Um, it's great, we were, you great were to be back in. Yeah, yeah and I, I think the last time you were here... We were talking about um, the support that you're providing to communities around the country to kick off community energy projects, mm. and now politics. A um, lot of parallels actually between the two. So yeah. Think, um, so what is the shift f- there? Nearly 15 years that I first came in to talk about the Hepburn Wind Project, and it it was at the intersection of community and climate and politics. And once again, um, you know, the, well, that that was certainly training wheels for me uh, to learn um, skills skills that I needed to be able to build Climate Two Hundred and play that role in the federal election. Well, what exactly did you learn from that experience? Um, I learned one thing. I learned is that every every idea like that starts off with just a couple of people over a coffee or a glass of wine, right? So um, you hear about these massive community efforts and. Once upon a time, they were really, really small. One thing I'm, I'm amazed by it was a year. Where are we now? We're in the early part of October. A year ago, exactly, the Kuyong campaign that took down the federal treasurer was was a single person was Anne Anne Capling, and she was having coffees with people saying, "I think we can do this." I think, uh, you know, it was one person, and then two, and then six, and then twelve, and by election day, it was two thousand people working on that campaign. So. Every community project starts off tiny and it starts off uh, impossibly ambitious. So I I learned that. And I also, I learned that if you, um, if it's a a good idea uh, and it's fun, then you can scale it and you can you can grow and become a formidable force by the you know, by the time you need to and that's certainly what happened in electorates all around the country yeah and I mean the vo- voices of movement it's well known now um, mm. you know Kathy McGowan Helen Haynes showed what was possible when their community was behind them when did you start to get your head around what was happening on the ground with these community campaigns with this I, I guess a, a sense of that change was possible at, at the local level um, electorally. Mm, yeah, I hadn't thought much about independence till I saw the independents come together in. Um, there was a brief window at the when when Scott Morrison had taken over as prime minister. Julia Banks uh, um, left basically in disgust and moved to the moved to the crossbench. There was a by-election that brought Karen Phelps in, and for a brief moment, 
the the crossbench had the balance of power in the lower house, and that's when they put through um, the Medivac legislation that enabled people to um, uh, refugees in offshore detention to get uh, proper medical attention without the need for bureaucrats in in Canberra who were, who had been slowing things down. So I saw I saw them work together, and it, it was incredibly powerful. It was the first time the, the government fought them every step along the way, but it was the first time the government lost a bill on the lower house, on, on the on the floor of the lower house in 90, 90 years. The crossbench in that case, uh, and I've seen it again and again, acted like um, the the conscience and the backbone of Parliament. I saw how they worked together and uh, got to... Um, and, and, and Cathy McGowan was a significant part of that crossbench. And getting to know how they um, how they built their campaigns and the massive support and the, the, the difference in the way they engage with their communities. Uh, I read Cathy McGowan's book. I went along to her conference in... February of 2021, where 375 people from 72 electorates came together to learn how they how they built the movement in Indi, and they also another stream for how it was built in Warringah. A lot of commonality, you know, different people, different geography, but the same basic values of community being truly represented by their um, you know by someone that they choose, and because they choose from across the electorate, not just some small pre-selection pool that the parties put up because it's from people across the electorate they end up with phenomenally talented uh, people and people who who never would have found politics uh, appealing through the party system so as you, you know as you can see the, uh, the the independents that that are that are now in parliament there's um, uh, there's there's ten that we supported in the last federal election um, they are um, they're a different kind of politician they're not not career politicians they um, they, they um, are absolutely committed to their local communities and to um, and to a set of values that their communities will hold them to and so as you're watching on as this this growth in in support and the ability for independence to have a real cut through and play a really productive role in Parliament, you're thinking about how you can have some kind of influence. I mean, there's a range of ways of getting involved in politics. You could run yourself, you could get involved in one particular campaign. How does the whole idea of Climate 200 come about and, and the, the sort of mission, I suppose, of what you wanted to achieve through that entity? Well, we, we firmly believe that we get a, we get a better democracy when the community, when the community chooses their own candidate uh, and, the, the, and the candidate is... Is beholden to the community rather than in the the the, the party system is not um, is not even referenced in our constitution. There's um, you know, it's it's a set of conventions uh, that have enabled um, power to be shared between two major entities over the last you know, let's say hundred years or so, and um, and if you're if you're a party member you're, as, as well as your career, you're also um, beholden to your faction, your um, uh, your uh, party, your donors, your branch, and then at the end of the day, uh, very far down the ladder is uh, are your constituents, the people that you're really there to represent. Um, I, I saw firsthand, and, and, and many others saw through this um, uh, through this community independence um, movement that that uh, when when a candidate is chosen by the community and supported by the community, you get. A, you get a more honest politics. Uh, you get um, uh, politicians standing up and and speaking for for what the community wants. And you also, um, by turning seats 
marginal or putting threats on on the incumbents, we we get we get things done. So the uh, the PEP eleven project to drill oil and gas off Sydney's northern beaches, people have been trying to kill that for ten years. Um, great people running great campaigns, um, and and but but the government was full steam ahead on it until one of their MPs was threatened uh, with Sophie Scott's the Independent, and very quickly that's. That's the the one time that Scott Morrison did use one of his ministries um, that he that he took was to kill that project. Um, likewise, um, many many of us worked really hard to try to get um, refugees out of the uh, the, the Park Hotel um, hotel uh, detention system in in Melbourne. It wasn't until we got close to the election uh, when independents were putting a lot of pressure on it that the government just very quietly released people from, from that form of detention. And the same can be said for um, there was a significant amount of funding restored to the ABC as soon as it became uh, an issue, and uh, the National Integrity Commission that Helen Haynes pushed and the uh, 2030 targets that Zali Stegall pushed. In all those cases, uh, it's political pressure, or it's a political pain that made the, uh, the powers that be move and I think the community independence movement has, has, has shown it's very effective in that soft power that turns into real outcomes. I uh, learnt in your, in your book, Simon, that the name of Climate 200 echoes Kuyong 200. Um, what is that body? I mean, it's interesting. You've got, um, you sort of detail a long-standing, um, I suppose, is it a conversation, meetings with, with um, Josh Frydenberg in, in Kuyong, particularly on energy environment concerns, mm. which have been long uh, in your area of interest? But, yeah, what is this Kuyong 200? Body? So Kuyong 200 is a, is a fundraising organisation that um, supports the, uh, the Liberal federal member of Kuyong. Now, there isn't one now, but there had been for the last, you know, since the Liberal Party was formed, it was continuously in... in um, uh, Kuyong's been a, been a liberal seat. Uh, very successful fundraising group. It's raised about, I think it was about $4.5 million over the last five years. Um, we'll soon see how much it raised in this financial year, but I'm sure it's going to be um, a very significant sum. It provides a lot of... Um, uh, it doesn't take much to re-elect an, an MP in a safe seat. Um, what it does is provide, it provides a lot of soft power for the... For, for the um, for that MP to spray around the party, and um, now I, uh, I live in Kuyong. Josh Frydenberg was my local member. I assumed he'd be a local member for pr- pretty much forever. Um, very talented politician, uh, had had sort of the skills to advance in the party. So I, I spent um, a fair bit of time trying to uh, trying to help him become uh, a. Yeah, uh, strong on the strong on the environment, strong on climate, strong on renewables. Uh, o- over the years, and um, gradually we, we 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 butt heads more and more uh, over that. But for for a short time, um, uh, I, I was a member of the Kuyong Two Hundred for a couple of years, uh, which which was there to help help Josh advance through the party. Speaking with Simon Holmes, the founder of Climate Two Hundred, the body that had played a 
a role in supporting a whole number of independent candidates, many of whom had success at the 2022 federal election. And you note in the book or or essay, I'm not sure what the best way of of describing it is, um, how the odds are so stacked against independent candidates. They don't have the same brand recognition as those running for for major parties um, or have the benefit of um, kind of access to existing electoral roll data in the same that that some um, candidates for major parties might have and the ability to draw funds from elsewhere is also somewhat limited. But I'm wondering what your your, your views are, I suppose, of the role of, of money and fundraising in politics itself, because we've seen, um, you know, people with lots of money like Clive Palmer splash huge amounts on the election with varying levels of success. But clearly, you've seen a role here for money providing a really or, or supporting the right kinds of candidates in particular seats. How do you view that part of our democracy? Yeah, well, firstly, uh, it's... <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm fairly inspired. Uh, I go on the talk in the book um, about uh, Professor Lawrence Lessig, um, was at Stanford, now now at Harvard, who is uh, is passionate about getting money out of the political system, uh, and yeah, he he writes very well about how it has completely corrupted the American political system. He started a political action committee around 2012 with the aim to get candidates in that who would work to get the money out. Um, now, unfortunately, it takes a lot of money to get candidates in. And so he, you know, he said, yep, I get the irony. I'm trying to get money in in order to get money out. Um, embrace that irony. And I ask that you know, people embrace this irony. The, the major parties have, uh, I think in, in 2019, is about $180 million that the Liberal Party, uh, or, the, or the coalition rather, had um, was, was their income during that period. Labor was about $120 million. Um, Clive Palmer was 89. Clive Palmer spent 100 million in the election just gone by. So there are huge amounts of money. Um, but Clive showed us that money money's not sufficient. You need to have good organisation. You need to have people power. Um, you need to have, run skilled campaigns. And unfortunately, to run skilled campaigns, you do need some money. Um, so it's a, in the scheme of things, as a relatively modest, I think across the whole community independence movement, it was about a bit over $20 million went into the last campaign. Climate 200 was a crowdfunding campaign. We had 11,200 donors who put together 13 of, of thirteen million of that. But we're competing against, say, uh, the, the government ran a $31 million campaign just before the election, a uh, publicly funded campaign on, um, called Positive Energy, which was basically you know, somewhere between lies and spin, convin- trying to convince people the government was doing a good job on climate. Um, that's just one of the ways that public money is used for electioneering. Um, in, and unfortunately, in Australia, it's very, very difficult to run a credible, strong campaign without some money just for your core flutes, T-shirts, signs, uh, and, um, and increasingly the, the online, um, you know, the social media advertising that's becoming part of election campaigns. So I'd love to see us have less money in campaigns, but at the moment, the communities are completely swamped by um, by the big end of town, and uh, there's there's a great need for reform in that area. Yeah, and I, I mean, you, you and your collaborators have had a look at the success where it's worked and where it hasn't with regards to targeting money to different campaigns and, and learn a lot of lessons, and you detail those in the book. I'm interested in some of the ones that didn't end up with candidates or, you know, members in parliament, um, obviously, you know, Kylie Tink, Zoe Daniel, Allegra Spender, there's a Monique Ryan, there's a bunch that were successful and in the Senate too. Uh, but there were at least two dozen other candidates that Climate 200 
um, provided funds to the community campaigns but didn't end up in Parliament. What what about the future of those or what did mm. you learn in that area? And I, I guess a, a parallel question, could we see the crossbench grow even further into the future, do you think? Yeah, we think there's a lot of um, opportunity for the crossbench to grow. Uh, a couple, a couple of reasons, you know, a couple of uh, data points that support that. One, there were there were six campaigns, six communities where the independent came second. Uh, where, you know, if they'd done a little bit better, they um, they would likely be sitting on the crossbench right now. A great example, uh, Nicolette Nicolette Buller in Bradfield, um, which is another one of the seats that borders Warringah, where where Zali was. was if you, if, um, Ma, Ma, um, yeah, McKellar, Wentworth, North Sydney, um, three seats where independents got in all border uh, Warringah, where Zali is, and Bradfield's another. Now, it was previously thought that that was impossible to win, that that was, that was Liberal heartland. Um, and, you know, it's, I've got a quote in the book. Someone, someone told me that they'd vote for Caligula's horse there if it wore a blue tie. Um, absolutely unmovable. Well, it was the largest swing in the election against uh, against a sitting member, and uh, Nicolette um, came within a couple of thousand, a couple of thousand votes casted differently, and she would be she would be the the member of um, Bradfield. Likewise, in regional areas, um, there was a great candidate. Um, we didn't we didn't support him, um, but but absolutely would consider supporting him. Um, uh, Rob Priestley up in uh, Nichols, which is right next door to Indi. There's this, there is a definite neighbour effect. When 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 electorate is successful, the electorates around them start looking and start working how they can, uh, you know, how they how they can replicate the success. Rob came very close. He was he faced a very very dirty campaign um, by uh, the Nationals. Ran a, a, a text campaign. Or sent sent people unsolicited text messages. Uh, telling all sorts of lies about him, but it, you know, that kind of thing, unfortunately, does make a difference in the final days of the campaign. Um, and there are um, three or four other regional regional campaigns. Um, Susie Holt up in Groom, which is around Toowoomba, and uh, Kaz Heiss um, up in... Um, uh, the electorate's name <laughs> escapes me right... In Cowper, in Cowper which is up... Um, uh, in, in, in the, the north coast of or, or central um, north coast of, of New South Wales, those campaigns came really close. Then after the election, Cathy McGowan uh, ran another conference. Actually, she's got a, a group that came together called the Community Independence Group, which is um, coaching. Spent, they spent a lot of time coaching communities uh, and um, spreading, um, well, making connections between communities and sort of. Sp- uh, proselytising this community and uh, independence movement, she ran a conference called Next Steps in in August, and there were 475 people from 100 communities came. So the interest in this movement has grown significantly. Um, so we we think um, uh, not only is there more interest, and not only did a whole lot of communities um, come you know, come reasonably close. But it's now much easier to run campaigns than it was a decade ago and be, and be credible. And with groups like Climate 200 providing some of the financial support, we only provided um, uh, some, you know, in, in most of the winning campaigns, we only provided about a third of the support. But it was critical to help those campaigns get get momentum um, early on. Um, we think all those factors come together. We could easily see um, the the 
the the size of the crossbench, the community independence, we could see that double at the next federal election. And, I mean, you mentioned some of the dirty tactics um, levelled against some um, candidates, some of whom didn't didn't get up in the federal election. Um, as it became apparent that, that some of those running in, in particular seats were, you know, really resonating with uh, with the electorate, um, some of the dirty tactics, tactics ratcheted up against you and some of those independents as well. You were portrayed as a puppet master. Um, there were allegations of anti-Semitism directed at you as well, of course, um, not grounded in, in fact at all, and as well as um, those, uh, particularly, I suppose, from the coalition, um, but also the Murdoch um, news empire was directing attacks at, at you and some of these independents um, quite strongly as well. Why do you think that, for the most part, that didn't really work, that, that nonetheless, despite all this fear-mongering, so many of those independents were still successful? A couple of reasons there. One is the demographics are changing. The um, in in Kuyong, where, uh, where where I live, the youth uh, Kuyong had the largest number of uh, of young people voting uh, in an election um, in in Victoria. I think it was it was the high the highest number there. And uh, you know, speaking to youth, they don't they don't read the Australian. They're not reading the Herald Sun. They're um, they've basically disconnected from. The Murdoch Empire, which is, which is um, probably a, probably a very good thing. Um, this was the first election that millennials outnumbered uh, baby boomers in in these seats. The dem- you know, significant demographic shift, come on, so it wasn't is, is, is underway. It's not just uh, obviously in in Kuyong. Um, but we we were we were worried about you know were these negative messages cutting through? We ran a we ran a focus group you know, about six weeks out from the election to see which one which one of these you know how the how these attacks were affecting us, and um, people just didn't buy them. People said, "Hang on, Monique Ryan, you know, Dr. Monique Ryan, head of pediatric neurology at the Royal Children's, she's going to quit her job and uh, run for Parliament just to be a puppet of someone else." Don't buy it. Um, and another another factor, I think, is when you when you start getting a significant number of volunteers and the candidate is attacked uh, with baseless attacks, it makes the volunteers just double down with effort, effort and enthusiasm. So, I, I think ultimately the attacks, you know, and pretty silly to direct the attacks at me when I wasn't even running. So it it, it um it gave the independents clear air, I think, to have a have a clear run um, without, you know, they, they entered the election pretty much spotless. Um, you know, it was not, not always fun uh, being in my perspective, but it didn't, you know, didn't really hurt that much because it was coming from just one side of the media and, uh, and it was baseless. You know, um, interesting, I've just been mulling over this idea of a, a, a double the size crossbench and the thing is that it, it is potential because we've just seen it double in the last election. So holding on to that, it would be very difficult for one of the incumbents to form government with a double the size as we've got now crossbench, which is such an interesting idea that we might end up in a position like that, say, in you know, three years' time or, or a mm. bit longer afield. Do you think that would start to put more focus on you know, independence, policies on things like education and, and, and health and so forth because, as you point out in the book and as we all know, if you're an independent, you don't necessarily need to hold policy positions on everything. Um, mm. Governments are very complex beasts. If you're not in government, uh, you're representing your community, it's, it's actually quite a different situation. What's, what 
do you think about that? Like what parliament would be like, or I suppose uh, what, you know, being a supporter, I guess, of community campaigns, that role, whether it increases in its influence if we end up with yeah. a double the size of what we've got now. Crossbench. Yeah, what's well, one thing that I think is fascinating? Just just in the in the growth of the crossbench, if we if we add you know, the, the crossbench includes the Greens and Catter and 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 Dailey, but if we the, the crossbench is now the same size in the lower house as the Nationals, um, it's um, uh, all of a sudden gone from you know, a rounding error to being as significant as the third as, as the third party, um, the Nationals. Um, I think what well, what we're what we're seeing with with the independents is that they already they're <clears throat> they're dealing with a, a a very large number of issues across um, you know across what, whatever whatever comes to them from it's it's the government that controls the legislative agenda and they don't need to have a well thought out policy position on every issue going into the election but rather a set of a set of values and processes for how they how they make decisions. Uh, and um, I've seen that on, you know, as issues have come up, they consult widely within the community, but also with experts. They um, they are extremely resource constrained. Um, it's one of the you know, one of the first things that um, uh, that the, uh, Anthony Albanese did was was cut back their parliamentary staff from four to one, and uh, it's incredibly challenging for them to be across everything. But that's forcing them to um, to work more collaboratively. Uh, they, um, uh, you know, one of them will organise a briefing with an expert, and they'll you know, let others know that there'll be there'll, there'll be a briefing and have multiple MPs. So they're working. Um, I think it's a um, it's an alternative, but almost equivalent structure to uh, to a party, not one that binds you on every vote, but one where people uh, people form levels of, uh, of of trust, respect, and uh, share resources. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I think we'll see a future where where there are alliances um, um, that are based yeah you know, based on based on values, shared values, um, but not these bound these sort of caucused bound votes. Um, that's been a feature of the that is a feature of the party system. And so, what's the status of Climate Two Hundred now? I mean, are you actively involved in in the Victorian state election, for instance? Yeah, we've we've it took us a little while after the um, after the federal election campaign to sort of take stock and work out where to from here. But um, we, after very careful consideration, decided it was important. Uh, it's very important to support campaigns at the state level. There's still there, a, a lot. It feels sometimes that it, that that it all happens in uh, in in Canberra on the big issues, but it's it's the states that approve fossil fuel projects. The states are responsible for forests. Um, if we are down here in Victoria, this is the only. Uh, state in the country that has a tax on using an EV, um, you know, a, a, a disincentive for people to shift across to an EV. Um, so there, there are plenty of big environmental issues, um, and then you know, integrity has been uh, sort of um, uh, has has been an issue on both sides of politics down here in Victoria. So on those issues, um, climate integrity and um, uh, even um, women's safety. There's plenty to do, uh, but also it's these the, the people at the community level who are working on um, on the state campaign are learning how to learning how to campaign. They're building up the social capital in the area in, in those areas, which is going to be so important at the federal election. So, good good training ground uh, and uh, 
good possibility of some positive outcomes um, should they increase their representation in, you know, in Parliament. Interesting. And look, we're totally over time, uh, Simon, but um, today is 10 years since the Julia Gillard misogyny speech and you were just speaking there about about women. Um, and I, I'm interested in your thoughts with so many more women in, in Parliament now, not just because of the crossbench, but, you know, in, in Labor politics too, federally. Um, are you anticipating a, a, a kinder, gentler politics, which I've, I think, you know, to use one of these phrases that gets thrown around a bit, are you um, optimistic, I guess, about that? Yes, and I've, def- I've heard that from you know, a, sen- a senior Labor staffer, um, told me a little while, you know, told me a few weeks ago that there is a marked change in the atmosphere in, in Parliament House. Um, that there's you know, less uh, you know, snide comments in the in the hallway when you pass people. Um, there is a slightly different tone even even in the in the House um, for debates. Um, certainly, if, if you go back and I, I, I rewatched the um, Julia Julia Gillard speech the other day and seeing just that the the sort of um, uh, the, the snake pit that that parliament was, and seeing how the men in that parliament um, totally disrespected um, the the prime minister, uh, it, it'd be be hard to imagine that right now. But one thing I think that's fascinating about this community independence movement is how uh, how skewed um, the the numbers are uh, towards women, not just in the candidates, but in those involved. You know, if I go along to any. Voices of meeting or any campaign meeting where you know, the movers and shakers around the table who are making things happen, and pretty much at all levels, it's 70, 80 percent women. Um, it's you know, I think significantly a response to uh, you know, the events of early 2021 when federal government was dealing so poorly with so many issues, really invigorated a lot of women. But I think also a lot of women have, are realizing that. Uh, yeah, they, they they've just got to get get involved, um, and uh, that the the men who have been running the place are, are not, um, you know, are, are nowhere near the merit of what the community can put forward uh, with these processes. And I think that's been vindicated at the federal election. Thanks for being at Triple R with us today, Simon. I'm Simon Holmes, the court uh, from Climate 200, author of a new essay slash book. Not sure um, it's both. Uh, the Big Teal, it's out through Monash University, publishing um, in the National Interest Series if you want to get your hands on it. It's been um, a really enjoyable conversation. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Galia. Thanks, Dylan. Thanks. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. Three decades ago, when Ukraine was newly independent, it was briefly the third largest nuclear power in the world. It held thousands of nuclear arms, which Moscow left there after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. But Ukraine made the decision to completely denuclearize, and this was in exchange for an agreement that the US, UK and Russia would guarantee their security. And right now there's pretty major questions being asked about whether that agreement called the Budapest Budapest Agreement will hold. And if it doesn't, well, that is actually terrifying. Um, Jeff Sparrow is writer and broadcaster and here to speak about the recent nuclear threats in the war between Russia and Ukraine. And good morning, Jeff. It's good to have you here. Good morning, the Dynamic Geo. How are you both going? Yeah, going, going good. Well. Although it is pretty nuts that we're kicking off this morning talking about nuclear threats with you. Um, but it does seem to me, Jeff, that it's sending all the wrong signals to other states around the world outside this current conflict that they should definitely stop seeking nuclear weapons now that 
Ukraine, which is disarmed, is being targeted with a nuclear threat. What's your thoughts on, on where we're at right now? I think that's, that's completely right. I, I mean, the, the Cold War was terrifying in terms of the prospect of nuclear exchange, but the prospect of conflict was in some respects constrained because it was a bipolar world. And so there was, you know, the, the, the doctrine of mutually assured destruction, if either power used the weapons. Now we're in a much, much more unstable world where the alliances between the big powers are shifting and changing all of the time. And as you said in your introduction, nuclear weapons are still there. And um, it's very, very scary, I think. I mean, I uh, in Joe Biden just declared that the world was facing its biggest nuclear threat since the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, and I think in, in many respects that is not overstating the situation. Yeah, and I mean, we've you know, Putin has threatened to use nuclear weapons multiple times, and most recently there are some fears of of him using tactical nuclear weapons, which I suppose are, are kind of smaller and would still wreak you know quite devastating destruction um, across certain areas. But I guess it's not sort of full scale nuclear war per se. But uh, I mean, even the um, you know, if it does come to that, the, the repercussions are so devastating. I mean, do you think that we have properly grappled with the the reality of what could happen out of what's happening in Ukraine currently? Yeah, so there was a recent study um, in the journal Nature Food that, that, that suggested a nuclear exchange of involving less than 3% of the stockpiled weapons would lead to a third of the world's population within two years. So, you know, nuclear war is a pretty bad thing. It is, you know, the ultimate nightmare. And I think what we're seeing in Ukraine is a conflict spiralling increasingly out of control. You remember when it started, all of the parties involved were... Well, the Russians were very keen to talk about it as simply a regional affair to do with, you know, their borders. And even Biden said only a few months ago that he wasn't prepared to start World War Three over Ukraine. And what we've seen since then is a massive escalation, both because the Ukrainian crisis is having a catastrophic effect on the world economy, but, of course, other powers are getting increasingly involved. So the Americans have now contributed, according to some estimates, some $40 billion uh, to the Ukrainian war effort. And as more powers get involved, geostrategic implications become more and more profound. And so both sides now, well, but, but both powers involved, the, the United States and Russia, have, you know, real concerns that if they should be seen to come out badly from this war, it will massively weaken their standing in, in, in the world. Russia has been very concerned to show that it's still a power despite its, you know, despite the collapse of the Soviet Union, and so it's very keen not to be seen to be defeated in Ukraine. At the same time, the Americans are very worried about losing, losing their hegemonic um, position, and they don't want to be seen after the, the catastrophic war in Iraq and the withdrawal from Afghanistan. They don't want to be seen as backing the losing side in Ukraine. And in some respects, I think you could see the American involvement in Ukraine as being uh, directed as much at China in, in, in Russia. And so there are these geostrategic 
pressures that push towards an escalation mean that we should take this kind of nuclear rhetoric uh, very seriously indeed. Well, I mean, you know, the comparisons with the Cuban Missile Crisis, that never escalated to the total nightmare that um, it it could have, um, which is good. Um, But there was leverage points where people could de-escalate do you see that they're there? I mean, just the, what you just characterised there, Jeff, it doesn't look like we've found that leverage point where everyone can say face or something, whatever needs to happen between states. Is there anyone speaking about what those kind of points could be or those points of negotiation? I think that, that, that that's, that's, that's a really interesting um, question, Kalia. I mean, because we have to think about the internal pressures as well. So Putin obviously realises that his own position is now fundamentally linked to the Russian invasion in Ukraine. And the Russian battlefield reverses have been so significant that I think... Putin internally is very, very conscious of of the need, from his perspective, to do absolutely everything to win the war. So there's pressure internally for him to escalate. And if you think about the politics of the United States, um, we've got the midterms coming up, the midterm elections coming up in in America. Uh, It's very uncertain how well the Democrats and and Joe Biden will do in in those uh, elections. And also pushes um, the president to be more hawkish, um, not least because the Democrats have always seen Russia as a point of pressure to use against the Republicans. There are some Republicans who are more or less openly supportive of Putin. You might have seen that the um, that the uh, Conservative Political Action Conference that was recently here in um, Australia tweeted out. Um, pro-Putin talking points. Um, uh, Tucker Carlson, who's a very influential right-wing commentator in America, is more or less openly pro-Putin. And so in, in terms of domestic politics, there's press, there, there are reasons why Biden might want to escalate the rhetoric. And in terms of, like, diffusing um, the crisis, I mean, I think one of the things we have to recognise is that the what we might call the forces of peace are much weaker than they have been for a long time. There's nothing like an anti-war movement anywhere much in the world. I mean, there are signs of war opposition growing in Russia, but, you know, in the United States, there's not very much internal pressure calling for a de-escalation. And so, well, I don't think that, you know, a, a nuclear exchange is a likely outcome. These situations can spiral out of control very, very particularly in a situation where neither side has a real reason to de-escalate. And that's why I think we need to take it very seriously. Speaking with Jeff Sparrow, writer and journalist, um, columnist with Guardian Australia, lecturer over at the University of Melbourne as well, wears many hats speaking about the the Russia-Ukraine crisis and and the sort of ongoing and and seemingly escalating threats of nuclear conflict there as well. And I wonder in in a broad sort of geostrategic sense, Jeff, I mean, there's been a, a conventional wisdom for those who you know support um, nations having nuclear weapons is that it, it encourages peace in a way because nuclear armed states are reluctant to go to war directly with each other and we've seen that I suppose you know in the US um, not wanting to engage Russia 
Russia directly, even though they've, they've of course, supplied many Ukrainians with weapons as part of this conflict. But I suppose um, in some ways that has allowed what we might call conventional military action to 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 go on in Ukraine for a long period of time with you know so many casualties as a result of that i mean how do you reflect on on that conventional wisdom about the role of of nuclear weapons in in the world i think since the end of the cold war the motivation for states to get or to um maintain nuclear weapons has only increased i mean in some respects that was really the lesson from the Iraq war, the Americans were able to invade Iraq precisely because Saddam did not have weapons of mm. mass destruction. You only have to compare, you know, the, the the survival of the regime in North Korea to, to get a sense of, you know, um, why regimes might see uh, nuclear weapons as a form of protection. And that, that's coupled with, of course, the massive hypocrisy that prevails around, you know, nuclear weapons and the sort of the, the, the agreements that are supposedly meant to limit their um, proliferation, you know. Uh, there, there's a lot of pressure being put on Iran not to get nuclear weapons, but, of course, everyone knows that Israel has nuclear weapons, that there are no sanctions being placed on the Israelis, you know. The, the regimes that have nuclear weapons, you know, um, are increasingly rethinking the old conventions that said they, that, that they could never be used in a strategic sense. You know, if you actually look at the American press, increasingly we've seen a, a, a surprising number of articles from pundits talking about how you know the use of nuclear weapons should no longer be um, um, thinkable. And of course, in Australia, um, the Australian government has now committed to uh, nuclear-powered submarines. Now, not nuclear. But the idea of nuclear-powered submarines would once have been a taboo and been completely politically unpalatable because there was such a strong opposition to nuclear power for environmental reasons, but also for reasons that were connected to the threat of nuclear war. And that movement has largely um, disappeared. And so, you know, I, I think it, it, in some respects it's a straw in the wind that... You know, there is bipartisan support for um, nuclear submarines in Australia, and that's not really much of a contention in Australian politics at the moment. It's symptomatic for how the, how the political mood has changed. And, I mean, it, it is in Ukraine's interest to say that tactical nuclear weapons are unlikely to be used, and I've heard spokespeople for that, for that government say that many times. Uh, I mean, there might be a sense that saying it will mean it will never happen, but, I mean, how strong do you think the Ukraine voice is in any of these discussions, Jeff, in between? You know, we've spoken about the US and Russia and others. Um, how much does it matter what they say? Well, I think that's a really good point as well. I mean, we not, we've, we've seen lots of other major military conflicts start... Over the name, in the name of small countries, and those small countries end up being manipulated and used by the the major world power. So, the, you know, the, the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine was an atrocity, and the Ukrainian people have a right to self 
defence, but I do not think the interests of the American generals who are treating Ukraine as a chance to make strategic points to the rest of the world are the same as the interests of the people of Ukraine. And I think there is a real danger that, um, despite all this aid being pumped in by the Americans, that the Ukrainian people are going to come out, you know, um, very badly um, from from all of this. And, you know, as I said, I mean, I, I, the, the issue with nuclear weapons is that their use is so horrific and the consequences are so far-reaching. And at the same time, it's very easy for a situation to escalate out of control, even if that's not necessarily what any of the parties... Um, directly want. And again, you know, I, I, we shouldn't overstate this, right? Like, we're not on the edge of a nuclear war, right, at the moment, but there are lots and lots of flashpoints when nuclear weapons are involved. You know, Ukraine is one of them, but of course the ongoing tensions between um, China and the United States involve two nuclear armed powers. The, the ongoing tensions between India and Pakistan involved two nuclear-armed powers. And so the global instability makes the unthinkable more thinkable than it was in the past. Yeah, um, could, could you imagine a really strong movement against nuclear weapons gaining traction, Jeff? Because as, as you note, I mean, that sort of has, has dissipated over the years, even as the, the nuclear threat has increased. But nonetheless, we've had the, the UN Nuclear Bans Treaty, of course, championed by ICANN, which was founded in Australia, and Labor has pledged to sign on to that. Where do you see that movement going into the future, reflecting on, on what's happened in Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote a bit for The Guardian about this um, a few months back, noting, um, you know, how how influential the anti-nuclear um, movement had been and how much sort of that threat of the atomic apocalypse had sort of hung over, you know, that, gener- that, that Cold War generation compared to now. And in many respects, we are closer to the use of nuclear weapons um, than back then, but yet people seem less concerned about it. And I think in, in some respects it's because, you know, if you think back to the 1980s and the, 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 the era of the Second Cold War, the world was a lot more stable then than it is now. And, you know, I think the dreams of young people today are haunted by visions of the apocalypse, but the form that apocalypse takes is more to do with climate change than it is to with... Um, nuclear weapons and so that tends to mean that you know the the, the threat of um a nuclear war doesn't get the 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 same attention of course you know we need to see that these two threats are not in fact counterposed and you know as we've talked about on previous shows one of the consequences of climate change is that the environmental the various environmental crises lead to other crises which foster political instability. So there's a real sense, I think, in which climate change and the threat of nuclear war actually intersect and exacerbate um, each each other. So there's a, there, there is a real need for that kind of peace movement that, that, that we once saw. It's just that 
it doesn't seem that it's anywhere immediately in the offing. And I think that's something we need to try to change. I mean, a, a conflict of any between China and the United States would be catastrophic, but a nuclear conflict would be, well, it would be unthinkable. I mean, it would just be unthinkable. And I think that's got to be the starting point for any discussion about this. They, these outcomes unthinkable and we have to do absolutely everything to ensure they don't happen. Well, somehow, Jeff, we ended up on a point of hope, which is good. <laughs> nice way to... contemplate the Armageddon with you. It means we'll ask you back on next month, all right? Um, I think we can we can do it again then. Um, thanks so much for hanging out with us again this no morning. No worries. Okay, thanks, thanks Jeff. Uh, Jeff Sparrow, Bye. writer, broadcaster, many other things. Um, student of history. And, uh, yeah, good to, to get um, a reminder of some of those kind of big-ticket historic um, moments and why they're relevant today. Three... Triple. Ah. Policy announcements are coming thick and fast in Victoria as a state election edges closer. We've heard a bunch of new commitments in health and transport in particular, and a new battle line emerged last week around freedom of religion as leaders of the two major parties wade into the saga involving the Essendon Football Club after their new CEO, Andrew Thorburn, stood down after being asked to choose between that job and his role as chair of City on a Hill Church. To unpack all this, we're joined now by Victorian State Correspondent with Guardian Australia, Bonita Kolovos. Bonita, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for coming back. Thank you so much for having me. And so let's start with the the Essendon saga, because it did take up a a lot of space, I suppose, in in The Guardian and elsewhere over the past week. Um, I mean, this really is kind of a a workplace issue in some ways, but what are your reflections on how this um, sort of entered the political frame through the the Premier's comments and subsequent response from Matthew Guy? So it really obviously ramped everything up when the Premier um, was asked his views on not on Thornburn's appointment, but rather the church's views. Um, Obviously, they were quite anti-abortion, homophobic, um, and Andrews does have a track record um, of sticking up for, you know, the LGBTI community. He walks in Pride March um, right at the front. Um, So, you know, when he was asked about it, we kind of all knew what he was going to say, and um, it did really ramp things up for Essendon, forced them into holding a press conference um, later that day on the Tuesday. Um, Andrews obviously described those views as absolutely appalling. Um, then obviously we had the reaction to Andrews's reaction. Um, we had the Catholic Archbishop come out and criticise him for weighing in. Had Matthew Guy saying, you know, it's not up to the Premier to appoint people onto the Essendon board. Um, so, yeah, it kind of set off a snowball effect. So, Andrews, he is you know, very politically savvy, and for him it was an opportunity to talk about all the things he's done in this space, like banning gay conversion therapy, um, forcing the church to break the confessional, fee- the confessional seal sorry, to um, report child um, abuse, um, you know, voluntary assisted dying, all these things where he's gone head-to-head with the church before, it gave him an opportunity to talk about it and, you know, wedge the opposition. So, you know, for him, politically, probably won some points in it. Um, But, yeah, it definitely did overshadow a lot of announcements that were made last week. I mean, you know, did you do you take a view on this, Benita? Is it it might have you know made um, given him a chance to to restate a lot of achievements? Uh, I would say, mm. especially in the social space. But uh, he also you know said that 
he's Catholic, he sends his kids to Catholic school, his faith is important to him, it guides him every day. Those sorts Mm. of comments, do they also play well for the Premier, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think it adds legitimacy to what he's trying to say. Um, You know, it's not like he is not religious and he uses his faith to guide him in particular ways and particular issues, standing up for people or... um, what was one of the examples he used, helping homeless or domestic violence um, victims and survivors. Um, so, you know, I, I think it added weight to his argument, but um, it was really interesting that we're going into um, theology on, um, you know, six weeks out from the campaign. Um, and, you know, it helps when you've got views on the other side with the coalition, obviously, is a lot more... Um, you know, there's different groups, different churches, quite literally. We've got candidates that are pre-selected um, that are part of the Mormon Church or Pentecostal churches. Um, got some views that are quite anti-abortion. So, I don't know. Me, maybe I just spend too much time covering politics. I um, see the politics in it rather than the um, um, the religion per se. I think that he knew exactly what he was doing yeah, by laying... And, I mean, this was a particular flashpoint, and we saw in the past, um, the most recent federal parliament as well, over the um, the debates involving religious freedom and religious discrimination and the, the kind of clashing of rights, I suppose, between the LGBTI community um, and certain um, religious organisations as well. But, I mean, do you imagine in the, the Victorian context that this sort of will have legs or it was kind of a, you know, a major story for a week where there was a bit of political point scoring going on and then we'll sort of move on to, to other things? I do imagine we'll move on just because we're getting closer to the election and for most Victorians it isn't on the top of their agenda. They're worried about, you know, cost of living, healthcare, um, you know, transport, those sorts of things that we've seen um, politicians focus on in the last couple of weeks. Um, we did have a piece of legislation go through Vic Parliament before everything um, wrapped up on, you know, not allowing schools to sack or... Um, you know, have LGBTI students expelled from the school because, you know, they're LGBTI. Um, so it is something that Andrews has, you know, advocated for in the past, but I just don't see it other than, you know, as a political sort of thing um, dominating over the next couple of weeks. I think now that he's gone, um, he's had a weekend, had every media commentator write about it, um, my suspicion is that that's where it'll end. And um, yesterday we did have the Liberal Party come out and then say that should they win, uh, Victorians will pay $2 a day for public transport. Um, mm-hmm. And, I mean, in, I'd be interested in your your take on that announcement and I guess whether public transport is something that we do need to be discussing, particularly as we've got more people travelling around now than we have mm. for, for some years. Look, it's a clever one. Um, two billion, um, not two billion, one point three billion dollars over four years. It's going to cost um, two dollar all day public transport. Um, I don't know. I think it works in the sense that it's a you know addressing cost of living. You're paying something close to ten dollars if you're in zone one and zone two to use the train every day, which is wild. Um, you know, which means that you would get gone up. Two dollars <laughs> means that it's. Uh, you know, what it costs but, for one day yeah. now is five days if you're travelling in. Um, yeah. yeah. So I think it's something like um, $3,500 you'd save per year under this plan. Um, so obviously it is attractive 
um, when we're talking about trying to keep costs of living down, it you know incentivises people to get on the train rather than get in their car. So from a you know climate perspective, it makes sense. Um, you know we're talking about infrastructure, which everyone um, you know likes. The other side of it though is obviously paying for these things contributes to, like to the services of them. Like you know if we're expecting PTV or, you know, Metro to do as much with less money. I'm not sure how that'll work. Um, I, I assume that the opposition will be contributing that fund still to those services so that they can keep going. Public transport user associations, um, infrastructure groups are a bit mixed on this announcement. Um, who was it? Um, someone from the Public Transport Users Association said the opposition had gone nuclear with this. They weren't sure that it was the best approach to this issue. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I think it's something that's really cut through. I talk to a lot of my friends that don't really follow politics in the way that I do, and I don't blame them. Um, but they all were like, oh, no, this is a good one. I like this one. Um, so, I don't know. I think the government will have to come up with something to, you know, address it because, yeah, like I said, cost of living seems to be a really big one when I'm talking to people as, like, a you know, issue that's important to them at the moment is prices of everything going up, their wages are going up. Um, something like this is a good solution. Yeah, speaking with Vanita Kolobos, Guardian Australia's Victorian State Political Correspondent, talking um, about some of the major issues as we um, head to the, the polls in, in a couple of months, or in one month's time, in fact, about six weeks, we are away from, from the Victorian election. And, I mean, that, that issue, I suppose, it, it highlights a tension between um, kind of immediate relief or, or re- relief in terms of cost of living and, and the cost of public transport um, coming soon and uh, sort of more long-term benefits we might come uh, that might come from, you know, building things like the suburban rail loop and, and large-scale infrastructure projects that, that take quite a while to construct. And I suppose moving on to, to health policy, there's been a lot announced in, in that space, but we know that there's immediate issues that need fixing sort of ASAP in terms of um, what we've heard around the, the triple zero um, uh, kind of situation and ramping and, and staff shortages in hospitals as well. From, from what you've seen, Benita, is there a sense that some of those immediate challenges can be dealt with really soon or, or are the commitments more about long-term planning and, and development of, of hospitals and the like? Commitments have largely been around building hospitals. Um, we have the opposition. I think they've announced up to 25 hospitals built or redeveloped. They're obviously saying they'll do that with money from the Suburban Rail Loop project, which they'll be shelving. Then you've got the government out there. Um, this week they announced this up to $6 billion to split the Royal Melbourne Hospital and the Royal Children's Hospital. So instead of having two facilities, there'll be four. I think it's something like um, 1,800 new hospital beds completed by 2034. Um, so it is these kind of big hospitals, um, which I don't know, I talk to a lot of health experts and unions and the like. Um, when you know government and opposition make these announcements and a lot of people have been saying building these hospitals doesn't really address the issues that are at play right now, the immediate concerns that you've mentioned as well. Um, although both have announced a plan to you know, pay or subsidise HECs for nurses and midwives and um, students doing nursing or specialist nursing. So, um, I don't know, 
there has been a lot of investment into triple zero in particular. The government likes to talk about um, how they seem to be reaching their targets again. Um, so maybe that, I think it was $12 billion that was in the um, recent budget on health is addressing those short-term issues. Um, I think it's too soon to say. But, yeah, the um, cynic in me goes, oh, God, we've got a staffing issue. We're struggling to get um, healthcare workers, but we're building all these new hospitals. How is that going to work? But, obviously, these will take time. They're probably confident that the staffing issues will be resolved by the time these hospitals are built. Yeah, and I guess you could also say shelving a, a, a rail extension, but we're going to make it cheaper to catch the train, all these things. <laughs> we're, we're not supposed to join these dots, I don't think. I mean, once, you know, when it comes to engaged electorate, uh, I know it's, you know, it's, it's hard to, to generalise. I mean, places I've been in the last couple of days, I'm seeing way more candidates handing out uh, and, you know, the card tables are out in suburban yeah. shopping centres. There's definitely forums happening at the local level. Um, I mean, do you have a sense in your reporting, Benita, that uh, Victoria is starting to engage in this election? Because I certainly, I think the last time we spoke to you, it didn't feel that way. It felt that it was still a long way away. Yeah, I think there was also a, yeah, an element of kind of election fatigue because we obviously had the federal election in May and people were a bit like, oh, no, not again. <laughs> <laughs> I had politicians knocking on my door and, you know, harassing me in the shopping centre a couple months ago. Do we really have to do it again? Um, but, no, I've got the sense, too, that it's really ramped up. Um, I've been out at Hawthorne and Kew last week and um, this week I'll be in Sandringham, Brighton and Caulfield with the candidates there. Um yeah, it's it's definitely ramping up. Campaign officially doesn't start until first of November, um, but because Parliament's not on anymore, obviously politicians have got a lot of time up their sleeve. I think the Premier was out five days in a row last week. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think voters are still a little bit tired, still a little bit on. Oh, do we really have to do this? Um, but I don't think they have much choice. I'm afraid. <laughs> That's right. Well, I um, look forward to, to hearing more about what you learn from um, from heading out and, and chatting to more voters um, in those areas. And uh, I suppose the next time that we hope to speak to you will be um, very close to the state election as well. So um, always great to have your insights on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.